0: You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Hey, if you weren't in the room earlier when I introduced myself, my name is Sam. I serve as one of the pastors here at the church. And again, just so happy that you would choose to spend your Easter Sunday with us this morning. You know, today, all across the world, millions and millions of Christians will gather in homes and in church buildings just like this to celebrate what we believe to be the greatest day in all of human history, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the day that all hope was restored for humanity and for the world. And so in the few moments that we have together today, I want to travel back in time to that very first Easter Sunday, 2,000 years ago. Can we go there together for a moment? Can we? Okay. Imagine, imagine, it's, uh, imagine it's early that morning, that Sunday morning, before any sign of, of the resurrection of Jesus has even surfaced. All you know at this point is that Jesus is still dead. And maybe you're one of his disciples, his followers, and you've given every waking hour of the past three years to following around this teacher, this rabbi, this Jesus of Nazareth. City to city you've gone, watching him heal the sick and and make the lame people walk and blind see. You've heard some of the most revolutionary ideas come out in his sermons. Things about the kingdom of God, backwards, upside down ideas, but compelling ones. The kind of ideas that, if true, would would literally change everything. And so you've put all of your hope in this guy, this Jesus, the one who even, even the elements, the wind and the waves obey him. You've watched crowds of people gather everywhere he went. Thousands of people from all over the place have come to listen and to learn. And then at the peak of it all, right when it felt like something huge was about to happen in the world, that this revolution was about to go global, the most tragic thing you could ever imagine happened. The miracles and the teaching, all of it came to a halting stop as Jesus was arrested, put on trial, beaten, bruised, flogged, and then hung up on a Roman cross to die. And it all happened so fast. I want you to imagine the the amount of confusion that Jesus' followers would have been feeling in that moment, that first Sunday. The, The hopelessness. Your teacher, your Lord, the one you really believed was the Messiah. The one God had promised to send. The rescuer was here, but you watched him die. You watched him breathe his last breath on the Friday. And now it appears that he's just another statistic in a long list of messianic pretenders this is not how you expected it to end. And now you feel like the foolish one for believing, even telling your friends, no, this guy's different. He's the real thing. But it's been three days now since he died and you're discouraged, depressed, angry, sad, embarrassed, maybe a myriad of different emotions. John 20, it describes that opening scene in Easter morning like this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. I imagine it was... 5 or 6 a.m. and cold outside, the kind of crisp air where you can see your breath. And Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' devout disciples, she can't sleep. How could she? She's probably tossing and turning all night. And so she gets up early and she goes to the tomb because dead or alive, she wants to be as close as possible to her Lord, to the one who changed everything in her life, gave her dignity and value, who saw her for who she really was. And so she goes to the tomb. Maybe it's the same thing she did yesterday morning, just sat by the tomb but as she arrives there on this Sunday, she's absolutely shocked by what she finds. The stone's been rolled away. It's been removed from the entrance. And, and we read those words on this side of history, and it's so easy, especially if we've grown up in church and we've heard the story repeated Easter after Easter. It's easy to assume that Mary's first thought would be, yes, he's risen from the dead. He's done it. He's alive again. But you have to remember that in the first century, they had no concept For someone rising from the dead. A dead person walking was as foreign to their culture as it is to ours. They watched him die. The Romans killed him. And to be clear, Romans knew how to kill a person. Especially someone who was posing political threats. They were taking no risks. They needed this guy gone. And so after nailing him to the cross. The the most painstaking and humiliating way to be killed. They pierced his side. Allowing him to bleed out. And ensuring that Jesus of Nazareth was no longer And so Mary's first assumption that the body had been stolen is a very rational one. She said, they've taken my Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. See, on several occasions, Jesus had spoken about his death and his resurrection. But his disciples had no idea what he was talking about. Was he talking metaphorically? Was he talking in code or in parable like he was known to do? They did expect resurrection. Many of the Jewish people had this theological vision for the resurrection of the body at the the end of time, far, far into the future. But no one had an expectation for the resurrection of one man smack dab in the middle of history. They've taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Let's keep moving. Look at verse 14. It says, she, this is Mary. She saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. See, in that moment, she's speaking to Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. And again, that, she thinks he's the gardener. That shouldn't surprise us. For one, it's, it's dark, it's early, it's shadowy. Her eyes are probably swollen with tears. And on top of that, she's not expecting to be speaking to a resurrected person. So she assumes it's the gardener. If you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go and get him. It's not until verse 16 that Mary recognizes who it is that's right there in front of her. All it takes is Jesus saying one simple word. He says, Mary. It's his shortest sermon in the gospel of John and I think his most dramatic. Mary. Jesus simply says her name. I love that. How does he reveal himself to her? He doesn't say like, it's me, I'm back. Like I can imagine so many more heroic ways for him to kind of land this moment after he's conquered death and risen from the grave. I'm sure Marvel could come up with a stunning resurrection scene with crowds of people cheering as Jesus descends from the clouds. But he doesn't show up like that. He comes humbly and gently to this woman in the garden. And he doesn't say, it's me. Actually, could it be that in this moment, he's actually saying, it's you, Mary. That one word, her own name, spoken by the most significant person she'd ever known, it changed her whole life. To be known and to be loved by Jesus. And don't we all wanna be known? To feel seen by the world and by the people around us. To feel loved and affirmed for who we really are. I know I do. Affirmation means a lot to me. I'm a, I'm a words of affirmation person. And I appreciate encouragement no matter who it comes from. But it means the most from the people who are closest to me. You know, all hell can be breaking loose in my life. But if my wife, Joyly looks me straight into the eye and says, I love you. It's like everything's going to be okay. Or she just reaches out her hand and grabs my hand. It's like, okay, a hush kind of falls over me. Or I even remember being a little kid and the first time I heard my dad say that he was proud of me. I'm sure he'd probably said it before. But I have this, this specific memory in my mind. I think I was 10 or 11 years old and a pipe had burst in our house. And he was away at work and so I went down to the basement. I figured out where the tap was and I turned it off. And uh, he came home from work that day and he had a little card and a present. And he said, I'm so proud of you. And those words marked me. Those simple words from my dad, they shaped my identity. The words that are spoken over us matter. They impact us. And what Jesus is saying in that moment to Mary is that I, the greatest, the greatest being in the universe, I see you and I love you. He's speaking identity over her. And notice it's not Miss Magdalene, it's Mary. So personal. And there's something about the character, the nature of God that I want you to see in this, that I want you to catch, that God is not a God of generalities. That Jesus didn't just die for the entire world, for the cosmos, but he died for you. He doesn't just see you as one person within a great crowd, but he knows you by name and he's calling you. Mary. There's so much wrapped up in that moment. And she's the very first human in all of history to encounter the risen Jesus. Hey? I think that's so significant because who was Mary? Before she encountered Jesus, several biblical authors described her as demon-possessed, a demoniac. These were people who walked around, often half-naked, talking to themselves, hearing voices, crying out. They were social outcasts, usually basically homeless. And Jesus chooses to reveal himself to her. To a woman, not a man, by the way, in a very patriarchal society, and not a pillar in the community, an ex-mental patient, and then he gave her the assignment to go and share the news of his rising with all the others. The first ever Easter sermon was preached by this woman, by Mary. And I don't know how much more vivid and clear Jesus could be, how much more powerful the message could be that he doesn't love based on merit or pedigree or moral achievement, not by social or political status, that he doesn't save us based on how good we are, but by how good he is. That's the grace and mercy of Jesus. He doesn't come for those who are strong or think that they're strong. He comes for those who know that they're weak. I love this quote from author and theologian Philip Yancey. He says, Jesus was the first ever world leader to inaugurate a kingdom with a heroic role for losers. He spoke to an audience that were raised on stories of wealthy patriarchs, strong kings, and victorious heroes. Much to their surprise, he honored instead people who who had little value in the visible world the poor and meek, the persecuted and those who mourn, social rejects, the hungry and thirsty. See, the kingdom of God is not for those who are good. It's actually for those who are humble. It's this upside-down kingdom that Jesus is is putting an exclamation mark on by the fact that he chooses to reveal himself to Mary. He says her name. And then how does she respond? Verse 16, it says that she turned toward him. In that one or two seconds that it took to turn around, I, I imagine that the whole world shifted ever so slightly on its axis in that moment history too went from bc to 80 see just moments milliseconds ago there was a woman in the garden who was filled with this deep sorrow and despair in the agonizing presence of unconquerable death but she turns around and sees jesus there in front of her she's filled with the greatest joy the greatest joy she's ever experienced in the presence of this death conquering central figure of history The rush that must have come over her as she turned towards him. And to borrow the words of theologian Samwise Gamgee, everything sad began to become untrue. She turned toward Jesus and everything changed. Why? Well, for starters, the resurrection meant that, that she was right about Jesus, that he really was who he said that he was. He was the Christ, he was the Lord. All hope had been restored. See, if Jesus rose from the dead, then all the things that he did, the provocative words he said, you know, all, all the things that, that he, as he spoke about God or, or even spoke and said things that only Yahweh would say or do, it was all legitimate. See, if Jesus had stayed dead, then he may have been an interesting teacher. He may have had some compelling ideas, but that's it. He'd be no different than Aristotle or Plato or any of the others. But because he rose from the dead, just like he said he would, we can trust him. It's God's great vindication of Jesus the Christ, king over all creation. You know, and on that note, maybe it's important to say that Mary's not the only person who saw the resurrected Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, it's a letter that was written only 20 years after the resurrection. Paul says there were 500 other people who saw Jesus in the days that followed. Paul's literally saying to his readers that are there in the first century, saying, you have questions about this? You know, go and ask any of the people, the 500 eyewitnesses. Most of them are still alive at this point. You got questions? Go talk to Joe at the butcher shop. He was there. Go talk to Andrew. Go talk to Deborah. This wasn't one woman hallucinating in the garden. This was the first of a sequence of appearances to hundreds of people over the span of days. The resurrection means that Jesus really is who he said that he is. It also means that death has been defeated. Maybe you're here today and and you're you're a little bit anxious about death. I found that a lot of people are uncomfortable talking about death, maybe because of all the unknowns or or the questions about our existence or life after death. And so many people fall into one of two categories. They either approach death like this, like everything's meaningless anyways, we're all going to die, so who cares? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Or they do everything possible to avoid death. Preserve life as long as possible, almost cheat death with anti-aging mechanisms or technology. I read an interesting article over this last week about a guy named Ray Kurzweil. He's an executive at Google, and he takes hundreds of vitamins every day, and and he does these intense anti-aging therapies so that he'll live long enough for the transhumanistic dream of uploading his brain to a computer. He figures that technology should be around by at least the time that he's 97, so if he can just live that long, that he'll be able to live forever in the cloud or whatever. It's this desire to extend life, to kind of beat death. There's another guy I read about called Peter Thiel, an author and a tech entrepreneur who had a pretty scathing article written about him in the Vanity Fair. They said, Thiel has this obsession with warding off death, so it comes as no surprise that the Silicon Valley billionaire is interested in at least one radical way of doing it, injecting himself with a younger person's blood. So essentially, he's been getting these series of blood transfusions, exchanging his old man blood with young man blood, letting it run through his system with hopes to extend his life. Kind of crazy. A little bit controversial. But without the resurrection of Jesus, our greatest hope is just to stay alive as long as we possibly can, try to avoid death, to cheat death, so to speak. But is that the win? Like my brain in a computer or a few extra years with some younger blood inside of me. The Christian story says that because Jesus rose from the dead, death no longer has the place it once had in the universe. It no longer is something that we have to fear. It doesn't have the final word. Because of the resurrection, the final word is life. Eternal life with Jesus to those who believe. Death has lost its sting. And there are so many other implications of the resurrection. But here's the implication, or here's the invitation, I should say, for us today. In light of everything that Jesus has done, his death on the cross, his victory over Satan's sin and death through his resurrection, the invitation is to follow the example of Mary and to simply turn toward him. Because anyone who comes face to face with the resurrected Jesus is changed forever. Jesus has done everything necessary so that you can turn to him and that you can even hear him say your name. Norm, Marty, Diego, John, Cassidy, Carlos, Rob. This is our Jesus. He calls each of us by name. He's alive and he's here by his spirit. The invitation is simply to turn towards him and to receive the free gift of life that he has on offer. You can experience resurrection life right now by giving your life to the resurrected king, the one who dealt with our sin on the cross, died, but then defeated death and rose again. That's the gift he's offering today. Resurrection life, hope for the future, but will you receive it? I wonder if there's some people here today that, that do feel hopeless, who can absolutely relate with those disciples, with Mary early that Easter morning, who woke up with despair and a sense of hopelessness. Maybe you look out in the world, and and truthfully, it all feels a little bit bleak. You've been searching for meaning. Maybe you've been trying out different ideologies and practices, and you've been trying to, to fill the void of emptiness that you feel. Can I just say it's Jesus that you're looking for? He's the one who can fill you. And as Mary turned toward Jesus and saw her Lord, saw her God, her King, everything changed. And that's the invitation for us today to simply turn toward Jesus, to behold him, and to allow him to change us from the inside out. Scripture tells us that turning to Jesus is as simple as naming Jesus as Lord, giving our allegiance to him, believing that God raised him from the dead, and we're saved. So would you turn to him today? He offers hope. He offers life to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you have done for us. For going to the cross and then for rising from the grave and offering us life to the fullest. I pray for those who are in this room right now who have never turned towards you. But maybe as they're here and as we've sang about you, as I've been talking about you and and sharing about your goodness and and the, the offer of life that want to turn. You know, if that's you right now, here in this room, I just invite you, if you want to turn to Jesus, would you pray these simple words with me? Just do it in your heart in the quietness of this moment. Say, Jesus, I give my life to you. I want the life that you have on offer. I'm tired of the, the empty promises of the world. I want to know you, Jesus, I wanna live for you. I give my life to you. I surrender, take control. Bible says that turning to Jesus is as simple as declaring him as Lord, believing that God raised him from the dead and you're saved. So if that's you, I'd celebrate right now that Jesus is here, he's saving. I pray for each of us that are here in this room today, that we would stand in awe, that we would stand in worship and adoration of you, Jesus, the one who saves, the one who offers life, the one who offers hope. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of C.A. Church.